Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Yes, this is Jed Stuger, the head football coach at Lindenwood University football team. And uh, you are listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy, an online school teaching pro football history. Our special guest this week is award-winning director, filmmaker, producer, and photographer, Alan Farst. Prior to his current film, Triangle Park, which is the subject of our interview today with Alan, Farst released a documentary called Chuck Lavelle, The Tree Man, on the keyboardist for the Rolling Stones. Alan's a founder of Palmar Studios, an independent award-winning creative company, and his work has been featured by Panasonic, Maxim Magazine, USA Today, Drone 360, Billboard, and Nikon Cinema, just to name a few. His photography is syndicated through Contour by Getty Images. But we're going to do something a little different this week. We're going to start this episode with the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week in order to set the stage for our guest, Alan Farst. First, we're going to talk about the history of the formation of the NFL. Then we'll get into the history of the Dayton Triangles, and we'll talk about that first game that's the subject of Allen's film. September 17, 1920 is considered to be the birthday of the NFL. But as a historian, I want to focus on accuracy in the accounts. There was a meeting of the American Professional Football Association, which is now called the NFL, on September 17, 1920, but there was an earlier meeting on August 20th of that year. However, since only four teams were represented at that August meeting, the September 17th follow-up meeting is considered the quote-unquote birth of what is now the NFL. To talk about that formational meeting, let's look at how pro football got to that point. In the 1880s, you started to see athletic clubs form football teams. College football was taking hold, and when players graduated, they needed an outlet to continue their football pursuits. As competition between athletic clubs increased, the clubs would recruit the best talent. Success on the football field turned into more memberships at the club and increased revenue from gate receipts. In Western Pennsylvania, athletic clubs took a foothold in society and were more popular than college games in that area. This was especially true as the athletic clubs put together better quality teams on the field than their collegiate counterparts. In head-to-head matchups between the athletic clubs and the local colleges in the western Pennsylvania area, the athletic clubs defeated the college teams. For athletic clubs to compete against each other, teams did what they could to entice players to join their clubs and play for their teams. However, professionalism was frowned upon at the time. There were rules in place that restricted any college player from being paid to play football. Therefore, you would see players play under assumed names. 
Stories were told of players receiving pocket watches as gifts for playing for the team. After the game, those pocket watches were sold at the local pawn shop for cash. The following week, the same watches were given to the same players as gifts. It was a way to get around outright payment to players. Then, heirs of amateurism were replaced with outright payments to players to join the club's squad. The first documented professional player was William Pudge Heffelfinger, who was paid $500 to play for the Allegheny Athletic Association against the rival Pittsburgh Athletic Club on November 12, 1892. By 1896, the Allegheny Athletic Association had become fully professional and is considered the first fully professional team. Now, 1920 was not the first time that a professional football league was formed, nor was it the first National Football League, but it had by far the most staying power. There was another National Football League in 1902, but it didn't last. Also, quote-unquote, national was a misnomer, as there were only three teams and two were from Philadelphia. Both of those teams were run by rival baseball team owners, John Rogers of the National League Philadelphia Phillies and Ben Scheib of the American League's Philadelphia Athletics. However, they thought that having two teams from Philadelphia in their quote-unquote league wasn't going to cut it. Therefore, since Western Pennsylvania had the strongest football teams, they added a team run by Dave Barry, who had owned the two-time champion Homestead Athletic Club team and were the strongest team in the area. The teams in this league did play teams outside of the league, but it was really a race between the three members. The championship game was between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Pittsburgh Stars, which was Barry's team. Pittsburgh won 11 to nothing to take the title. The two Philadelphia teams then played each other for second place, with the Athletics winning to take city bragging rights. That same year, there was a football World Series held at Madison Square Garden. It was a five-team tournament that consisted of teams from New York and New Jersey. One of the teams was the New York Knickerbockers, which was made up of players from the Philadelphia Phillies and Philadelphia Athletics football teams. The tournament was won by Glenn Pop Warner's Syracuse Athletic Club. It was around 1903 when the football powerhouses shifted from western Pennsylvania to Ohio. The Massillon Tigers were formed and they enticed some of the best players from the Pittsburgh area to play for them. In 1905, the Canton Athletic Club was formed to compete against Massillon, but the Tigers were still the best in the area. Throughout the 1900s and 1910s, the Ohio teams continued to get stronger, as well as some of the teams from the surrounding states. In 1917, there was a league that formed in Indiana, but it fell apart when World War I hit. Also that year, there was an attempt in Detroit to start a league similar to the 1902 NFL. It would be made up of football teams run by baseball clubs, but it never got off the ground. Professional football struggled to stay afloat and teams needed to band together for their own survival. Salaries were spiraling out of control. Players were jumping from team to team each week and sometimes played for multiple teams in the same week. And college players were playing pro games. This hurt the colleges and hurt the players' amateur status. Even though the strongest teams were in Ohio, Teams in Illinois, Indiana, and New York were stealing players from Ohio in order to strengthen their squads, so something really needed to be done. As mentioned, on August 20th, 1920, the first meeting of a proposed new league was held at Ralph Hayes Hupmobile Dealership in Canton, Ohio. Hay was the owner of the Canton Bulldogs, one of the strongest teams in Ohio. Also at the meeting were Jim Thorpe, also representing the Canton Bulldogs, Frank Need and Art Ranney of Akron, they ran the Akron Indians the previous year and would form the Akron Pros in 1920. 
Jimmy O'Donnell of the Cleveland Tigers, Stanley Kofall of Maslin, and Carl Stork of the Dayton Triangles. At the meeting, the group discussed various topics that were of concern to their teams. A few items came out of that meeting. A new league would be called the American Professional Football Conference. Ralph Hay was elected as secretary, or at least temporarily. There was an agreement to eliminate stealing players from other teams, or what was called team jumping. The clubs would work together to form a schedule. Game scheduling was pretty loose at that time and varied from week to week in those days. They stated that no team would sign college players with remaining eligibility, and they established an unwritten salary cap. Since only four teams attended this meeting, they needed to expand. Hay reached out to the best teams in the neighboring states for a second meeting. There were a few teams that had expressed interest in joining the potential league, but were not at the first meeting. It's speculated that the following three people wrote letters to Hay expressing their interest. Leo Lyons of the Rochester Jeffersons. He had always wanted to form a professional league and thought his Jeffersons were one of the strongest New York teams that could compete with the Ohio powerhouses. Frank McNeil of Buffalo. McNeil had run the strongest team in Western New York, the Buffalo Prospects, and had formed the Buffalo All-Americans. They were considered league members in 1920, but did not participate in the September 17th meeting, nor is there any evidence that they were officially admitted to the league in 1920. However, since they played many of the teams in the league that season, they are included in the league standings. And Dr. Alva Young of the Hammond Pros. The second meeting was held on September 17, 1920, and was also at Hayes' dealership. The meeting included the representatives from the August 20th gathering, but also added Leo Lyons of the Jeffersons, Doc Young of the Hammond Pros, Walter Flanagan of the Rock Island Independents, Earl Ball of the Muncie Flyers, George Hallis and Morgan O'Brien of the Decatur Staleys, which is now the Chicago Bears, and Chris O'Brien of the Chicago Cardinals, which is now the Arizona Cardinals. There were some teams that were invited, but they didn't attend. They were the Minneapolis Marines, the Fort Wayne Friars, Detroit Heralds, Columbus Panhandles, and Toledo Maroons. The items addressed at the meeting were the league was renamed the American Professional Football Association, or APFA. Jim Thorpe was elected president of the association. Stanley Kofall was elected vice president. Art Ranney was elected secretary and treasurer. A $100 franchise fee was charged, but there's really no evidence that the clubs actually paid that fee. Doc Young, Walter Flanagan, Carl Stork, and Stanley Kofall were named to a committee to draft a constitution and bylaws. And finally, it was determined that the league champion would be named based on a vote at the off-season league meeting, which was similar to how the Ohio League determined its champion. As a result, it may not go to the team with the best record. Of note, there is no record of the meeting addressing the major problems that resulted in them forming the league in the first place, which were team jumping, using college players, and skyrocketing salaries. However, it did look like they removed the salary cap instituted at the previous meeting. So the association shaped up as follows for the 1920 season. You had the Akron Pros, Buffalo All-Americans, Canton Bulldogs, Chicago Cardinals, Chicago Tigers, Cleveland Tigers, Columbus Panhandles, Dayton Triangles, Decatur Staleys, Detroit Heralds, Hammond Pros, Muncie Flyers, Rochester Jeffersons, and the Rock Island Independents. The first game with the league team was on September 26, 1920, when the Rock Island Independents beat the non-league St. Paul Ideals 48 to nothing. 
But the first game between two league opponents was October 3rd, 1920, when the Dayton Triangles took on the Columbus Panhandles, the subject of Alan Farst's film. Now, since we're all about historical accuracy here at the Football Learning Academy, the Rock Island Independents played the Muncie Flyers, who were both NFL teams, the same day as the Triangles taking on the Panhandles. That was the only other game played that day between two league teams. The start times are unknown, so we don't know which game actually kicked off first. Just to wrap up that inaugural season, the Akron Pros won the title with a record of 8-0-3. In second place was the 10-1-2 Decatur Staley's, who are now the Chicago Bears, followed by the Buffalo All-Americans with a 9-1-1 record. The association renamed itself the National Football League, or NFL, in 1922. Now let's get to the history of the Dayton Triangles. You need to go back to 1908 to learn about the origins of the team. Players on the St. Mary's College, which is now the University of Dayton, basketball team formed a basketball team of their own named the St. Mary's Cadets after graduation. In 1913, the St. Mary's Cadets formed a football team and went 7-0 in their first season, winning the Dayton City Championship. They repeated as city champions the following year. In 1915, they changed their name to the Dayton Gym Cadets to honor their sponsor, the Dayton Gymnasium Club. They repeated as city champions that year. In 1916, they reformed and called themselves the Dayton Triangles. Over the next several years, they continued their winning ways, including winning the Ohio League Championship in 1918. Moving to 1920 and the first season in the NFL, let's talk about that historic first game. As mentioned previously, it was not the first game played by a league team, but it was considered the first game played between two league teams. In this case, the Dayton Triangles took on the Columbus Panhandles at Triangle Park in Dayton, Ohio. Ted Nesser of the famous Nesser family coached and played for the Panhandles. Now think about this. Ted's brothers, Frank, Fred, John, and Phil were also on the team, as was Ted's son, Charlie. There were six members of the family on the field playing for that team, including a father-son duo. You'll never see that again. The Triangles were coached by Nelson Bud Talbot, who didn't have any family members on the team, but he was co-founder of the Triangles, so he at least had that going for him. Now on to the game itself. In the second quarter, the Panhandles were able to drive the ball to the Dayton three-yard line, but the Triangle defense held. Later in the quarter, the Triangles were able to drive down to the Columbus five-yard line, but time ran out in the half before they could score. In the third quarter, the Triangles were able to score when Lou Partlow had a seven-yard run for the first touchdown of the game. George Hobby Kinderdine kicked the point after touchdown. In the fourth quarter, Frank Bacon returned a punt for the Triangles 60 yards for a score, with Kinderdine kicking the point. Since this was the first game, people will say that Lou Partlow scored the first touchdown in history and George Kinderdine kicked the first extra point. However, since the Rock Island Independents were playing the Muncie Flyers that same day, and since we do not know when the game started, there may be a chance that Arnie Wyman scored the first touchdown on a 35-yard run of a blocked punt. Ruber Sala kicked the extra point for the Independents. This happened in the first quarter of the game, Dayton did not score until the third quarter, which is first may never be known, but since we're here to make sure the record is accurate, I needed to mention the other game that was played that day. The Triangles had a winning season in 1920, but finished sixth in the league standings with a 5-2-2 record. They started the season well, going 4-0-2 in their first six games, 
but were shut out 13 to nothing by the Akron Pros on November 21st. They were shut out again by those same Akron Pros, 14 to nothing in the final game of the season. Akron went on to win the league championship that year with an 8-0-3 record, as mentioned previously. Starting in 1922, the team declined. They stuck to the attitude of only using local players on their team, but the rest of the league was going out to get the best talent. The Triangles could not compete and turned into a strictly traveling team. However, since they were not competitive, they did not generate the necessary revenue to keep the team afloat. In 1930, the team was sold, was moved to Brooklyn, and was renamed the Brooklyn Dodgers. There have been articles written that the current Indianapolis Colts are a descendant of the Dayton Triangles. That's not true, so let's dive into why that's not true. As I mentioned, the Triangles were sold and became the Brooklyn Dodgers. During World War II, with players serving overseas, teams struggled to fill an entire squad. As a result, teams temporarily merged with each other in order to field an entire squad. You saw this with the Steagles, a combination of the Pittsburgh Steelers and Philadelphia Eagles in 1943. I'm not going to dive down the rabbit hole of talking about how the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Philadelphia Eagles swapped franchises in 1940. And if you want to get technical, the Philadelphia Eagles are actually a descendant of the Pittsburgh Steelers and vice versa. We'll save that for another episode. Now back to our story. In 1944, the Steelers temporarily merged with the Chicago Cardinals to form the Card Pits. The same happened with the Detroit Tigers, the renamed Brooklyn Dodgers franchise, and Ted Collins' Boston Yanks in 1945, where they merged just to survive. This merged team was called the Yanks. After the 1945 season, Brooklyn owner Dan Topping decided to take his franchise and move it to the rival league, the All-America Football Conference. To do that, he had to give up his NFL franchise license and get a new one for the All-America Football Conference. The league awarded all of the Brooklyn players to the Boston Yanks, but the majority of them went to the AAFC. Topping's new franchise in the All-America Football Conference was called the New York Yankees. Now, there was a team called the Brooklyn Dodgers in the AAFC, but there is no relation to Topping's Brooklyn franchise in the NFL. This officially ends the NFL lineage of the Dayton Triangles. However, people still want to connect things through the AAFC, so let's take a trip down that road. Topping had the New York Yankees franchise. In 1949, the New York Yankees merged with the Brooklyn Dodgers to form the Brooklyn-New York Yankees. When the AAFC folded, three teams were brought into the NFL, the Cleveland Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Baltimore Colts. People try to make an argument that the Brooklyn-New York Yankees also came over in the merger, but that's not true. Remember the name Ted Collins? He's now back in the picture. When the AAFC-NFL merger happened, if you really want to call it a merger, Collins bought the rights to the Yankees players. However, the New York Giants also had the rights to some of those players. He changed the team name to the New York Yanks. The team was not very good, and Collins sold his franchise back to the league. Regardless of how you want to talk about the lineage, there is no way that you can claim that the Triangles lineage goes beyond this point even though the true end was when Dan Topping left the NFL to go to the AAFC. Collins' franchise was not sold to anyone once it got back to the NFL's hands. People wanted to say that the 1952 Dallas Texans were a direct connection to the 1951 New York Yanks, but again, that's not true. It was a separate franchise license issued to Dallas. Players may have been the same, but it was a new license, not a reselling of a license from the Yanks. Final end to the story. 
People also try to say the Dallas Texans became the Baltimore Colts, but that's another rabbit hole that we'll have to save for another episode. So there you have it, the lineage of the Dayton Triangles. Now let's get to our interview with Alan Forrest to talk about his film, Triangle Park. I'd like to welcome filmmaker, director, producer, Alan Forrest, the official Football Learning Academy podcast. Thanks for being here, Alan. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. And uh, I'm in Ohio and you're in Philly. So there we go. <laughs> That's how we do it these days. Absolutely. Yeah. No boundaries. <laughs> so let's start with what made you want to get into filmmaking and specifically making documentaries? Well, a long time ago, you know, I was just always fascinated with cameras, um, but I was a sports guy. So, you know, the cameras were more of an outlet of something I just did for fun. And I played sports, you know, I played football and basketball track. And when I grew up, my dad owned a drugstore. So when your dad owns a drugstore and, you know, you're talking in the early seventies as a kid growing up uh, for me, I, I would, uh, there'd be like these catalogs that were like this thick and, you know, there were those at Walmart and Myers and all these kind of places there are today, Costco. So you would, if you wanted something, you'd look in that catalog. And for whatever reason, all the pages, the, the ones that fascinated me the most were the cameras. And there was uh, eight millimeter and, you know, projectors and uh, still cameras. So um, one day I told my dad I wanted to get a camera. And he said, well, if you come every day after school, uh, I'll pay you to fill the vials. And then every day they would stuff, you know, like a little bit into a vial and he'd put it back on the drug shelf. And uh, after so many days, and I think dad sped it up a little bit. You know, I think he stuffed a few extra ones in there so he knew I could get that camera because it did feel like it was taking forever. And uh, so I ended up getting a Canon AE-1 was where how I started. It was just a labor of love. You know, I just, you know, I'd experimentally blow up firecrackers and see what that looked like, you know, things, things like that. And shoot pictures of trains or whatever I get my hands on. And then, um, you know, but, you know, football was my number one sport. You know, I was a quarterback and really from the fourth grade through the uh, 12th grade, I went to Vandalia Butler, uh, which is a suburb north of Dayton, right where the airport's at. That's where I grew up. So we were the aviators, uh, which was a good name for us. And um, and then I like th throwing the football. My dad was a, a really good quarterback. He he was uh, a quarterback up outside when he was in high school. Uh, he was an All-American up there out in a, well, it's kind of like where Mansfield's at, which is north of Columbus. And then out in the boonies where he lived, he went to a town oddly called Butler. So we both go to towns called Butler when we, when we grow up. So uh, my dad, uh, he, you know, he made a hall of fame up there and I got to go back with him and do that like 10 years ago. And that was kind of cool. And uh, one of the first uh, teams to, you know, get put in there and he got recruited uh, to go to Purdue and play there, but he ended up going to higher Northern. So, you know, we got a little football background in us, but, you know, I have to tell you, Ken, when you go in, in you're, you're Kenneth, right? Did you go by Ken or Kenneth? Ken. Ken, you just go by Ken. My dad is named Ken as well. So oh, okay. uh, and, and Kenneth, but in Mansfield, they call him Kenny. So if you go back up there, it's always Kenny first. That was his name. And so, but we all, you know, most people called him Ken because his, his um, pharmacy was called Ken's pharmacy. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, you know, when you look at football back, back in the early years, you know, we didn't have a lot of distractions, right? So he was always out back passing with dad, 
he was a good quarterback, so he could throw balls all day long back there to you. And, you know, he probably, you know, I probably started more as a wide receiver of anything because he was always, you know, throwing the ball to me. So, you know, fast forward, you know, you get into high school and then fast forward to just recently, you know, I learned why I didn't make the NFL is because when you meet Ben Roethlisberger and Troy Aikman and you see how big those guys are, right? You're like, oh, I get it. I get it. You know, they're like 6'4", 6'5", 250. You know, I mean, uh, Troy still got giant, you know, knots on his arms uh, at 56. You know, he's just, uh, he's a freak, you know, he's a, you know, he's a very talented guy, but the, the size is really, you know, bigger, faster, stronger in the NFL wins out. So the the players that are playing today, um, they would have murdered me uh, when I was in high school. They're just big. Now, before we get to your current film, Triangle Park, um, got to say you did an excellent job with your documentary on Chuck Lavelle. Um, why did you want to make that uh, particular film? Well, I, Chuck Lavelle, the tree man, uh, was a film that was basically about the Rolling Stone keyboardist. And it's a multifaceted storyline that we've got going on. Everything from him being one of the greatest pianists um, ever to walk the earth, but he's also has a farm and he farms trees and they're really big trees in the Georgia, Georgia pines and all that. And they're like about 110 feet. Um, and he's been doing that on 5,000 acres for a really long time. He and his wife, Rose Lane, and so that was interested. I was interested in that because I had met Chuck in 2002 and he was recording uh, a, on a record that we were pr producing in Memphis. So we had him come up and he played on a couple tracks. And then, uh, you know, a couple of bottles of wine later, I, we convinced him to stick around and play on a couple more. So um, he's just a really a great human being all the way around. I don't think you'll find a cleaner individual on the planet. And, um, and then the third uh, component is he, he was married to his wife at that point for like 47 years. And, you know, now they're, they're 50 years. So um, it's been a great project. Uh, it, we won, uh, we won the Sedona film festival with it um, right out of the gate. We did, uh, I don't know, six, maybe six uh, film festivals. It did really well. We did a sad film festival in Savannah, which is hard to get into. And that, that was a cool one, I thought, because, you know, that's picked by all the kids, you know, that are down there. That's not picked by, you know, old people. Um, it's picked by, you know, in vogue kids uh, and they found value in it. So that made Chuck and I feel pretty good. Um, and then we uh, we ended up uh, getting it on the back of Delta Airlines. So uh, to know that 200 million flyers have a chance to watch your film around the world that felt really good. And, you know, we could, we knew it was doing well because our website traffic went through the roof and it was just word of mouth. You know, people would watch it and then they would tell somebody and then they would look it up and you could tell it was working. And that was nice. And then, uh, um, you know, the Rolling Stones are going to tour uh, coming up here in 2024. And when they tour um, Delta, um, reached out and said they would like to uh, do an encore run of the tree man. So now they're going to run it again from April through the end of the summer. And, and that's cool. So we're like the longest running documentary on Delta airlines and that feels pretty good, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, it was an excellent film, so I I highly recommend it to everyone to go out and see uh, see Chuck Lavelle, the Tree Man. So nice yeah. work. Thank you. Now let's get to your latest film, Triangle Park. Um, it's a film based on the first NFL game between two league teams, the Dayton Triangles and the Columbus Panhandles. Why was it important for you to make this film? Well, you have to have a lot of passion for the sport, I thought. And, you know, for me, I I could have told some other stories. I had been on, you know, the Tree Man for three years. Um, but coming in, I knew I needed to set something uh, for me, the director guy, where I was going to go. They take a long time to raise money and, you know, kind of give, give them a little bit of lift to get them out and start working. So um, it just, it, I don't know, it just became really clear I was going to do this film because I'd reached out to some sports writers here in my town, Tom Archdeacon, which is our best writer here. He's a, a nationally recognized writer. He's a great writer. Uh, and I'd reached out to a guy named Steve Preeser. And Steve was the guy that actually figured out over 35 years that we were the first ever NFL football game between two teams in the NFL. And you see a lot of guys on the, on online, you know, like to haggle or think they know more than the next guy or something. But people miss what this really means. It's the not the first pro game. It's not the first, you know, kind of NFL where you've got one NFL team and, and a, a, just a, another team. It's the first game between, you know, two NFL teams that are playing each other. So it's uh, it just seemed logical that people would want to know what the story was. But it. When I started it, I wasn't sure, was there a story, you know? So I reached out to um, Steve and he knew a lot. And then I got connected with the uh, with the descendants. And when you start talking to the family members, that's really where the story for me was sold. So when you go and meet some of the family members, you know, they know something, you know, they know a little nugget. This family knows a little nugget. And they're like, and I'd ask him, like, do you guys have something um, that uh, is like an asset or do you have a helmet or do you have, you know, what do you have? What, what, would, what, what, what could we use in the film? Would you be willing to share? Well, there were those items, metal stadium balls. Um, there was a little triangle necklace, you know, probably about that big, like something like that. Every guy on the Dayton Triangles got one that year. And to me, I was like, has, who else has these? Well, there's only two in existence that we know of for those necklaces. And we filmed with one of them. And it was Hobby Kinderdines, the guy that kicks the first two uh, extra points. And then I met uh, with the Lou Partlow family. Um, they were the um, you know first ever uh, touchdown that was scored in the NFL. And and uh, between the you know the Partlows and the Kinderdines, um, Mark Fenner. And then the Saxter family, which would have been Kevin O'Donnell and Doug Spatz, um, man, I, I, you know, just a lot of misty eyes in the room when you're talking about maybe doing this, right? And that got me excited. That got me really excited to want to serve it, you know, because that's really what I do. I, I serve the stories. So um, I'm just the vehicle that shines a bigger light, you know, like, pff, here I come, I'm going to make a movie about it. And then it's like thousand X, right? So that's the goal like Chuck's story, you know, if you're going to be the Rolling Stone keyboardist, you know, you're serving the Rolling Stones and he's on all these records and all these hits. 
but you know, he'd look like a wild man if he went out and tried to tell everybody all the stuff he did. Right. And that's my job. And so I tell everybody that in a polite way and, and then they get to see it. And it was similar to how this was, you know, this was that way as well. You know, you had all these opportunities to talk about players um, and even sponsors, you know, think about the very first uh, team um, that played that day, Dayton triangles, and it'll be Columbus panhandles and Columbus, but the, the triangles were basically sponsored by deeds and Kettering and deeds and Kettering, you know, they started the starter and they were making money and they basically uh, supported the team and supported Carl Stork, our manager. And without those guys, you know, we don't have a team. What didn't happen? And we had a guy named Bud Talbot, who was our coach. And you'll find out a lot more about this stuff in the film, obviously, but you know, like Bud Talbot, you know, he went to Yale. He, um, you know, was a captain, moved back here to Dayton and was, the, you know, our coach for a couple of years. And his family was very wealthy. They uh, had a contract that they were uh, building the Pennsylvania or uh, the uh, Canadian Railroad. And so, you know, they were affluent and had a lot of influence in town and was probably how we got some of the things we got, like necklaces, you know. I doubt anyone else would have paid for that. They didn't have the money. And then when you look at the Columbus Panhandles, you know, all those guys, the Nestor brothers, first family in football that were playing for them, uh, were working at the Pennsylvania Railroad. And when you look at the Pennsylvania Railroad, you know, that's how they got around to all these games because they could travel for free. And then their manager who worked in, um, in the uh, machine air as well, was a guy named Joe Carr. And Joe Carr put all those things together and said, hey, we I could manage this team and you know I could sell them because I have the Nestor brothers. And so he did, and he did a good job with it. Shortly thereafter, after a year and a half, two years, he says, hey, I'm going to run the league, right? I'm going to take over and run the league. And when you look at what he did, he was – basically two things that changed in my opinion he he let teams that were college kids they, they stopped cherry picking them into the pro league and so you know you had notre dame given players you had ohio state given players and then that he made that stop and then the next thing was he recognized that baseball was doing so well but baseball wasn't in you know uh Canton and Dayton. It was, you know, it was in Chicago and New York. It was in major markets and where there was a lot of fans, a lot of money for sponsorship and a lot of interest. Cause all those people that live in the small towns will drive to the big town, right. To go see a game. And they knew that. So um, that's what Joe Carr said. He said, we need to be in those big markets too. And they started to move that way. And that's why I say that's probably, the reason why the you know pro football stuck at that point was because of those couple moves. And you wanted to talk more about more than just football within this film. You wanted to paint a picture of society at the time. Can you tell me a little bit about how society was uh, at the time this film was set? Sure. Um, in 1920, it was a really special time uh, that uh, probably would have been a great time to uh, – to live in you know there was a lot of opportunity 
a lot of uh, innovation at that time. Um, but if you think about 1920, what was orbiting around the NFL's infancy um, would have been prohibition in the spring. And later in August and September, the league is actually formed up in Canton, Ohio. And then just shortly thereafter, it was the first time women could vote. So you had the 19th Amendment. And I just thought there was a lot of interest there on how do we show that in a film. But more importantly, um, knowing that women could finally vote uh, that fall, I had a lot of interest in that because there's stories in our film about Susie Kolber trying to be the very first girl to ever play peewee football. And so I knew I had these things. They kind of all were resonating on female. And oddly, if you look at where the Columbus panhandles are today, um, or where they would be today if they were still there, it's actually the Pepsi bottling plant, the G&J Pepsi bottling plant, the largest family-owned and operated Pepsi uh, bottler. So I thought that was interesting. But also when you look back, it, that was not started by a man. It was started by two women. And so, and how that happens is, is the guy owned a bottling plant, came into the girls that worked in the accounting department and says, why don't you buy it from me? And so they said, not a bad idea. So they knew the books, they knew how to run the place. And then they brought in, uh, one had a, was already married, and the other one brought the boyfriend in. They eventually marry. And then all four of them owned uh, 25% of the of the bottling plant. And it's still family-owned and operated today. But just knowing that that all happened, again, around women, and, it, you know, oddly, I mean, when you think about it, there could be a 500,000 different kind of businesses sitting on top of where that would be today, right? And just the fact that it was actually a current sponsor and, you know, think about Pepsi and the halftime show for 10 plus years. I was like, wow, that's a crazy story. I think people will like it. So I incorporated it into the, uh, into the movie. Did you know much about the triangles and early pro football prior to doing the film? I knew a little bit to be dangerous. I think everybody here in Dayton knows like four bylines, but then after that, you'd run out of steam, you know? Um, so until I really started to write the script and get down deep into each player and having the interviews with each family descendant, that's really what, that's really where you get the momentum, right? You're getting the momentum because that stuff's not in any books anywhere. So you had to just go and learn what they had passed, been passed down. And that's why I say it was really important to do this work because had I wait, waited, I think the stories would be gone. You know, we had we had three people that passed away during the making of the film. And one of them was Steve Preeser. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Steve, we interviewed Steve late November. And, and I remember, this is the guy that, you know, figures out this is the first game. And, and then he goes in the second week of December and found out he had cancer. Didn't even know it. And then he passes away uh, um, like the third week of January. And, I mean, I just was, you know, everybody's got a purpose on this planet, you know. And you just, sometimes you got to find it. But 
you know, in his case, it kind of made you stop and go, you know, maybe that was his end purpose was to tell a story in the film um, because he loved this idea and he loved the triangles and he loved the history of football and he got possessed by it. Because think about it, he goes up, he goes to Canton just to go learn about football and he learned about Ohio in general from Dayton. He goes up there and in the corner up there, there's this little mention of the Dayton Triangles. They didn't really have much up there. Nothing about first game, nothing about any of that. So he goes back to, which would be like our local, you know, Cox business uh, newspaper. And he would go in the basement where the fish film is. And he started researching and he kept going back and back and back. And then he, you know, he finally runs out where he runs out of space where he uh, could find stories on them. And then he starts putting two and two together that, well, this might be the first game. And then he finds out there's, there was really, you know, it wasn't uh, football back then. It's not like it is today. You don't have 16, 17 games. You don't have a structured, here's one and here's four. And now today we're doing one, four, eight, 20, you know, we got all these times now, but, um, but back um, when they played, there was only two games that were played that day. And teams might, some teams might play seven games. Some teams might play nine or 10 for the season. So it was all over the place at the beginning. It was just like, who could you get to play? Would the scheduling work? Could the cost of it work? And, but, but what he had figured out is, is that the other team that was played um, was in a different time zone. And we went off at 2.30 and they went off a little later uh, because of the time. And, you know, and that was, um, the fact checking of the NFL and everybody else had come back to it once Steve had kind of petitioned them and saying, Hey, I think we were the first team and they all agreed. Um, and then it probably helped that the second game that was played, uh, was a forfeit. They waved white, uh, flagged it because the team was getting beat 41 to zero or something like that. So they didn't, you know, probably the NFL didn't want to you know, a uh, forfeit for the first ever NFL football game, you know, so. Optics wouldn't be that great. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I've known Steve for years, Um, you know, diving into the early football history, you know, early NFL stuff prior to NFL and stuff. So, I mean, he's definitely one of those names of people that did a, a lot of work to to tell the history of the game. So, I mean, it's, it's tough to hear about his passing, but um, yeah, I mean, he was definitely great for uh, researching football history. Yeah, it was great. You know, I joked with him when I, uh, you know, met him uh, on camera. I uh, had him at the studio and when he filmed, I always talked to him on the phone, but now I'm, you know, seeing him in person and, you know, he's got this little goatee, he's a little, you know, it's kind of like frail a little bit. And, uh, but he had this kind of like really distinct voice. And it was kind of just a little rickety old guy sound, right? But I told him, I said, man, you'd make a great uh, discovery, uh, you know, um, voiceover guy. I don't know why you're not doing that. And so I told him, I said, I'm going to find some project or commercial I'm doing. I'm going to have you do it. He liked that idea, but we never got there because he got sick and then passed away. But really a great, probably one of the nicest guys you can meet. Uh, I will say that he played pickleball. And uh, he loved it dearly and had a great group of friends. Uh, and there was that great group of friends from the pickleball 
made a very uh, sizable donation to the film project uh, on his behalf when he passed away. And, and that was pretty cool to see. Uh, that's great. Yeah. So I know you have a lot of big names uh, in this film. Can you tell me about some of them and their roles? Yeah, we, we got, uh, we got lucky. Um, the way I did the film was, I mean, you hear the term, put the cart before the horse. Yeah. I probably had two carts before the horse. So uh, to get this film done. So I knew that I was always building relationships and, and having to show people what we were doing and how we were doing it. Cause they didn't understand what was in my head and how I was trying to do it. So I actually filmed all the reenactments in let's say September. And I would then have to show that to the players. I'd have to show that to the narrator because they'd have to see it to understand where my head was. So, um, the, you know, I call them beautiful cinematic reenactments. You know, they look like you're watching a movie or something and people needed to see the reenactments because you really don't have a frame of reference of what 1920 looks like and everything kind of orbiting in that time. So uh, I talked to my publicist. We were able to get Michelle Tafoya on the phone with me. And I talked to Michelle, who, you know, obviously Sunday night, Monday night, sideline reporter, phenomenal, four-time Emmy winner. Um, she's got a great voice. She knows the game, loves history. And Michelle um, was just beautiful. She opened up the, the phone book, the black book, and said, who do you need? And she helped me get uh, a sizable number of the players that I wanted. Um, I always, I kind of equated, I probably had 35% of them. And then she had a massive amount of, that she could bring. And we needed that because just like in Chuck Lavella Tree Man, you know, you've got the Mick Jaggers, Keith Richards, Oh, and by the way, David Gilmore, Eric Clapton, you know, bands like Train and, you know, Billy Bob Thornton, Kevin Bacon. You had all those kind of people. And that's a convincing amount of people talking about a guy so that you understand him. And, and that's what we needed for this. We needed those 20 people to really validate this first game, shine a light on it, and so that that energy can come back to Dayton, Ohio, or even Columbus, because people are passionate about football. And so for me, it was always like, if we're making this, it's for the love of the game. You know, we're doing this, not, not, nobody's going to get rich off this project, but we we're doing it because we love football and we're going to share it. We're paying it forward with the next guy. You know, the story was a hundred years old when I started it. Now it's 103. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just, it's just one of those things you feel good that you're a part of. And you're kind of memorializing it uh, to put it out into uh, for the public to digest it and and learn more about how it all started. And I felt like we had a lot of really good things that were worth the price of admission if you were a football fan. But yeah, any specific players you want to know about or coaches or? I mean, you know, Norm Saxtetter. I mean, he's definitely somebody that you know, you combine his pre-NFL career with his NFL career. And, you know, he's somebody that to me, I think should be considered for the hall of fame. So tell me about him. Yeah. Norm Sachs that are really just kind of fallen through the cracks, in my opinion, you know, his family's gone painstakingly back to every place he's ever played. And when you look at those nine seasons and 54 touchdowns, 
Um, they stack up. You're basically doing a, a touchdown a game. That's hard to do um, at any level, but playing with a bunch of big, tough pro guys, that's something. You know, you look at a guy like Eric Dickerson, and Norb actually averaged more touchdowns just barely per game than Dickerson did. Now, granted, different eras, different times, and one could argue one for the other. But the bottom line is this guy's got legit stats, and the family's only been able to find if the, something's been put in the paper. So imagine most of it's probably not in the paper, you know, so a lot of it was missed. So he could have twice that, three times that. And the the Pro Football Hall of Fame is a partner in on our film. They're a marketing arm of ours for this. And, you know, I've told him since day one, I think you guys got to look at getting Norb on the ballot and trying to see and use this as an understanding for the writers that have the capabilities to nominate and get Norb into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, they could have something like that, that this, this film could help propel that a little bit. Um, when you look at how I did the film, though, I'm tying in generational stories. It could be a Joe Theismann story, uh, Tony Dungy story, um, a Cooper Cup story with his fathers and his grandfather playing in the NFL, right? The only one of five families to ever be three-time drafted in the NFL. So that's how special that family is. So um, and he, he must be a super quick healer because he's been hurt even a couple of times this year. He's bounced back, right? So those guys heal a little differently than we do. Um, but when you look at Eric Dickerson, in 1984, he was my favorite running back as a kid when I was 14. And I told Michelle, I said, she asked me, who do you want? I said, Eric Dickerson was the first guy I said. And she was like, why? How in the world do you want that guy? You know, and, um, you know, he's West Coast, he's L.A., he's, you know, you know, uh, Pony Express, all this. And I said, well, he was my favorite player. And I, you know, I want to celebrate generationally that rushing record from 1984 when he rushed for 2105. And it still stands to this day, 39 years later. I said, I think that's crazy. I mean, think about all the running backs that have come through uh, the NFL. Nobody's been able to beat this guy's record. They've come close. And some of them lost their marbles a little bit. Like Adrian Peterson got so close. I don't know why he didn't just get, you just didn't give him the ball like 12 times in a row to beat that record, but they did. And so the record still stands. So, you know, to me, um, that's, that says something about that record. And I kind of weave that record in there with Lou Partlow scoring the first touchdown. And Eric was kind enough that he got it. You know, he got how, how, you know, it's like Neil Armstrong, right? First guy on the moon. Everybody talks about him, you know, but nobody talks about Lou Partlow. He's the first guy to ever score a touchdown. You know, Hobby Kennerdine's first guy to ever score a uh, an extra point. Francis Bacon, who was for the Triangles, scores the second touchdown, and that's on a 60-yard punt return. So there's a lot of dynamics. I feel like we have our own Jeopardy category, you know, that could be answered for $500, right? And um, But, you know, I think it's um, – those are the ways that I found to bridge the gap on a story that, you know, you had some, some info, but for me, I had to make the story bigger. And by doing that, you had to bring in the players and the former coaches and current players and soon to be hall of famers like Larry 
Fitzgerald and obviously Ben Roethlisberger. Those guys are locks to go in there. But, um, but um, you know, having Troy Aikman, um, Dickerson, they're both in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, it meant a lot to see that they were willing to support the film. Now, I know that um, not only to try to be accurate, to maybe save a little money, too, that uh, you're able to get the uniforms from George Clooney's film Leatherheads. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, you know, when you're looking at how we're going to dress all these players and you're going to do this whole thing, um, you know, it was just one of those things where, like, that's going to cost a fortune, right? So we really had to figure a solution out for that. And that's documentary style work, right? It's always find a solution because your budget's not that big. And so we we rolled up our sleeves and found that we could get um, to the Leatherhead um, uniforms and we had them all shipped in. And it was, um, when they got there, it was kind of cool. They came in these big giant crates and uh, the staff was like, you know, everybody was all excited. Um, and, you know, just being able to know you were going to dress you know, kind of like 25 guys aside, uh, really, really helped out. And then um, we had them for a few days and and then we shipped them back. But, you know, that was great. You know, the film doesn't happen with a few of those kind of breaks that we had. I'd say like even going to like uh, Bender's Tavern in Canton, Ohio, number one restaurant up there. Um, but that's where after the league was formed, uh, the guys went over and had some, uh, some drinks. And uh, so it's, been in business forever. It's a wonderful restaurant. I encourage anybody, if you're in Canton, to go there first and then go or go to the Hall of Fame first and then go there for dinner, whichever, um, because it's great. And the the Jacob family that owns it um, opened their doors for us to, you know, and they get requests, obviously, all the time to, you know, hey, we want to film something and some kid with a camcorder. And they didn't realize that, you know, we were like some actual real film crew kind of you know, I'm in the director's guild. So, I mean, you know, things like that, they didn't really understand all that at the very beginning. Then once I met John, it was like, now, you know, we're, we're good friends. We talk quite frequently. He's done a great job of having us do VIP parties there when we were in Canton. Um, and definitely when we filmed there, it was great. And when we come in, we're like the circus, you know, we, we've got, you know, tour buses and trucks and all kinds of stuff when we come in and they were all accommodating. So, um, I, I, I could, you know, just live in Canton if I were going to eat at Bender's every night. Cause it, you know, it's just a great restaurant. So how can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Um, well, if, yeah, if somebody wanted to find me, I mean, it just go to my name, alanfarst.com, A-L-L-E-N-F-A-R-S-T.com. And then there's stuff there. Um, the Triangle Park um, website is just triangleparkmovie.com. And, um, you know, if you get lost in any of those, just Google, you'll find us out there. We got or that Google machine somehow picks up everything I'm doing. I don't know how it does it, but it does. Um, so yeah, it's all there and, um, lots of good things we're coming on. We're getting ready to do a faith-based film, a feature film called Osgood. Uh, you can check that out, osgoodmovie.com. And then um, after I get done with that, um, I'm thinking it's probably we're at least two years out, but we're we're going to tackle the uh, the flying machine, which is um, a movie about the Wright brothers and um, which is a feature film. And, you know, again, um, 
I don't know how I got in the lane of Ohio, but that's another one. So, you know, just stories out of date in my hometown that need to be told and nobody was doing them. And, and they're all these hundred year old stories, right? Uh, the flying machines like going to be 125 in 2028. So, you know, we don't tell it, no one's going to tell it. So it's a, uh, it's one, it's a gym there for me to work on these. Alan, thank you for being here. And I wish you all the best on your film. Hey, awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's all that we have for this episode. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links at the Football Learning Academy website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.